Hello, Friday night listeners. My name is Vivek Marugula, and this is Real Talk, where we're always rolling. this episode we will be talking about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy. So uh, let's begin. So for those who don't know, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy is obviously a trilogy by director Sam Raimi about the Marvel character known as Spider-Man during uh, that released during 2002 to 2007 starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, James Franco, and Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin in the first one, Alfred Molina as Doc Ock in the second one, and then Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman, and Topher Grace as Venom in the third one, respectively. Alright, so I'm going to get into why I want to talk about these films. Now, as a kid growing up, I didn't really know a lot of English. I had come from America, and I wasn't exactly the the best speaker and English is one of the hardest languages to learn so I sort of focused more on movies that had action and so the Spider-Man movies were pretty simple action films if you want to get into them um there's not much they're not very complicated films they don't have like the most deep characters I think there is character depth in them which I'll get later in today's talk but if you want to get into them uh they're very simple stories and as a kid, I loved that story, you know, a story of someone who keeps getting knocked down, but instead of simply giving up or simply quitting, Peter Parker sort of just decided to help people, not because he wanted anything out of it, but because it was the right thing to do. And I think those films still impact me, and not just me, but impact a lot of people to this day. So... Now I want to get into the story of those films. And so the story of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy is pretty simple. Like I've said before, um, Peter Parker in Spider-Man 1 gets bitten by a spider and there's not much to it. Uh, he falls in love with Mary Jane and... Okay. Uh, and because of that, he sort of starts making mistakes. He gets bitten by a radioactive spider, but, uh, hold on. Okay, uh, all right. Yeah, no, it's, I, I just think you going. I'll, I'll talk to Luke about it. Okay. I don't know what's going on here. All right, so, um, sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, but, uh, but like I was saying, uh, it's a pretty simple story. Peter Parker gets bitten by a radioactive spider in Spider-Man 1 decides to use his powers for selfish gain that doesn't exactly work out the best for him so he lands with great power comes great responsibility fights a villain called the green goblin in the first movie then in spider-man 2 which is where i think the trilogy really starts picking up he sort of gets to a position of where he starts thinking to himself why should i continue to be this this character you know why should i continue to be spider-man nothing good ever happens when i'm spider-man so it sort of just hurts him so um 
and and so he's just he's just thinking about it and i think spider-man 2 has sort of an added depth that not a lot of superhero films nowadays have and so i really love the story of that one there's also a parallel with the main villain doc ock uh he is also someone who has a lot of power a lot of intelligence but he uses it personally because he believes he's better than people unlike peter who believes he's sort of lower than people and so there's this vice versa in that story another amazing uh story i think is um spider-man 3 which i i think there was story potential but wasn't exactly the best um it, it's just sort of There was, there was potential with that one, but it never really worked. I think there was just too many cooks in the kitchen. They added Venom, and they added what they wanted to call the the new Goblin, which was sort of Harry Osborn, James Franco coming back and becoming a new version of the Green Goblin, and it just... It, it didn't work. It was too much, and then on top of that, there was Sandman, and then on top of Sandman, there was Venom, and it sort of just became this big hodgepodge of okay let's just it was two spider-man films in one and i think that's what ended up killing the trilogy at the end of the day uh so really i i i don't think anyone was really thinking about what they wanted to do with that that movie spider-man 3 i mean it gave us the black suit but it also killed the franchise so, I mean, if you like toys, sure, but I think as a film, that movie was just was just bad. So, yeah. So, I just don't. Okay. Alright, so... Uh, so, I guess now we can get into at least some of the characters. I, th I think... The main character of the trilogy is Peter Parker, aka Spider-Man, and as as just a concept, I think as a superhero, Peter Parker has always been the most interesting character. He was introduced in the nineteen sixties as sort of a a um, like a response to teenage sidekicks. He was made specifically because at the time Captain America had Bucky Barnes, who in the comic books is not an adult man but is a teenage sidekick, and Batman had Robin. And so Stanley wanted to make a teenager and he wanted to make a realistic superhero. Now, in the comic books, Peter Parker is a lot more angry, he's a lot more vicious. Uh, the Sam Raimi film sort of toned that down. He kind of goes from being like a jerk no one talks to to more of a wallflower, which isn't exactly the most accurate version of peter parker it is a valid interpretation but i don't think it's one that i would necessarily agree with um yeah so i i just i think another thing is just how big these movies are and their interpretations of the characters are the problem is that if, if you like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, like, more power to you. That's not who comic book Spider-Man is. And a lot of people are saying, oh, this movie is the most comic accurate. Okay, so I have a, uh, these. a quick question. So, I know I'm butting in, but, uh -huh. like, what do you think is the best Spider-Man adaptation ever? 
see that's hard because when you mean spider-man adaptation do you mean like adaptation of the character spider-man or just like the entirety of the adaptation i would say the live action adaptation um if possible like what do you say is the best live action adaptation i'd go with andrew probably Uh, that's a controversial opinion but it's not exactly one that i think is wrong in any way shape or form uh he he sort of represents the closest of what the comics look like and he's sort of this brash angry young dude who goes through a lot and he becomes the character that we eventually love i think tom holland was a a good spider-man for team-ups but watching his solo films i never got the interpretation that okay this is the character from the comics and then as i said with uh with toby he's he's a valid interpretation of peter parker he's just not comic book peter parker and i think that's something especially now in the day and age where i think everyone's trying to prove that they're better than everyone because they know more comic book facts which is weird but it happens uh you know toby's just not comic accurate and that's that's just something people have to accept so uh, before before we have to do an ad break soon I want to jump into, I think, a controversial character, a bit more controversial than Toby, which would have to be Kirsten Dunst's version of MJ. Now, I was watching Spider-Man 2 with my friends recently to get prepared for this, and I think all of us decided that MJ sucks, just straight up. She's not a good person, not a good character. I don't know why they wrote her the way that they did. It was just, it was just bad. And I don't know if this is Sam Raimi's fault. Like, I don't know if he just can't write woman. I don't know if this is, like, an early 2000s thing. It's just... I I, I didn't understand. Because not only was it not a character from the comics, it just wasn't even a character. It was, like, a damsel in distress. And then she cheats on Peter. But for some reason, we're supposed to be, like, okay, she had a, a rough life. And that is something from the comics. Mary Jane Watson does have a rough life in the comics. Um, her father is abusive and her mother does struggle with getting away from her father and that's like a whole thing but it's it was like the problem was they showed that in spider-man one and then they tell us that it affects her throughout the entire trilogy when it it never does and so it's you sort of just have this flip-flop of a woman who can't stay committed and and then they they do the superhero trope of you know oh you're never there for me, which I think is a valid trope. There's a lot of talk and like for superhero fans of, is that a valid trope? I think that's a valid trope. I think having your civilian character talk about how the other character's sacrifice also hurts them is good. But the, the problem with that is MJ does that in Spider-Man 3. And Spider-Man 3 has so many plots that at a certain point, it just, it just stops working. So... I, I seriously just don't understand what what the idea was for that. Like, I don't understand if the idea was she's eventually going to become her comic book counterpart if this was a new interpretation. I if, And if it was a new interpretation, it wasn't a very good adaptation. It wasn't a very good interpretation of the character from the comics. Uh, they skipped Gwen Stacy, but they gave Kirsten Dunst Gwen Stacy's personality and then called her MJ, which was weird. I don't know if they just didn't want to adapt Gwen Stacy because MJ and Peter Parker were currently married in the comics when the films were coming out. I didn't know if they just wanted to do it for brand synergy. I, there's a lot of 
questions about both Peter and MJ's characterization that I find very concerning and very confusing. But overall, I think when you watch the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, I think Peter Parker is a good adaptation. I don't think MJ is a good adaptation, but I I do think, and, and we'll I'll talk about this after this upcoming ad break. I do think the strongest part of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy has been and always will be his villains, and I'll talk about that after these ads. All right, welcome back. So, as I was saying before, Peter Parker and MJ, the two main characters of the trilogy, are weird but not exactly super off interpretations. I'd say MJ's a flawed interpretation and Peter Parker's a new interpretation. But the best interpretation is... Okay. But I'd, I'd say the best interpretations in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy would have to be... Oh, wait. Hey, is that me being on? Yeah. yeah okay. Best interpretations would have to be the villains. So I want to go over what I would say are the three main villains. I want to say the three poster villains. So for Spider-Man 1, the main poster villain for that was Green Goblin by Willem Dafoe. And... Willem Dafoe is just an amazing actor. I think he's an amazing... He, he's, a, he's a thespian, so he's been classically trained. He knows what he's doing. And fun fact, he actually sought out the role of the Green Goblin. Now, you have to remember, this was the early 2000s. Comic book movies weren't, like, big. You weren't getting, like, 10... Um, like, 10 contract picture roles, like Chris Evans or Robert Downey Jr. So he specifically went out, and he wanted to play a character called the Green Goblin. So he had put in physicality for it. So he was about 47 when the first movie came out, and he physically did all his stunts. He was in that suit. It took him three hours to get in. He was hunched over on that glider when they had him up on wires, and he was fighting stuntmen. But not only is he just... I think he's such a good villain. In my opinion, he is better or either on the level of Heath Ledger's Joker because he is simply just a guy who wants to hurt people. And you can sort of see it in Norman Osborn, when he he starts out as Norman, he's this sort of businessman, and in the comics, and this shows up in the Raimi films, he's Norman sort of cares about Peter more than his own son, Harry, and that creates a, a drift between Harry and Peter, because uh, Harry, Harry has severe, like, he, he has severe parental issues, and his mom is dead, and his father is focusing on his best friend more than him. And so that's bothering him. And so when... And, and this is sort of addressed... There's a scene at the end of Spider-Man 1 where Norman goes up to Peter and he's like, I've been like a father to you. Be like a son to me. So he, he sees Peter Parker as his son and he sees sort of... He wants to push all this responsibility onto Peter. Now, for people who have seen the movie, they know... Peter obviously says, no, I have a father. His name was Ben Parker, a.k.a. Uncle Ben, and Norman dies. But Norman does come back throughout the trilogy. He shows up as visions for Harry in Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man 3. So I do think out of the trilogy, he is the best villain. Now, another great comic book villain that we want to talk about is Alfred Molina as Dr. Octopus. Now, Dr. Octopus... Just the name Dr. Octopus. Like, Green Goblin is a silly name, but I think Dr. Octopus takes a, a different level. And so, in the comics, uh, you have to remember the original comics were in, in the 60s. So, in the comics, he's this, he's this German scientist. Um, 
he has this like heavy so it's implied he has this heavy german accent and he he messes around with some radiation stuff and he gets stuff welded to him he gets four mechanical arms welded to him and he gets mad and he just goes insane because of radiation and he robs banks now sam Raimi saw that and he said okay how do we take this character called dr octopus and how do we make him sympathetic simple uh easiest way to make a character sympathetic uh, to make a male character sympathetic is to essentially do what they call fridging and fridging is essentially when you give a male character a wife or a girlfriend and you kill them aka you fridge them and that makes the male character more sympathetic now it's not exactly a trope that i think is done well heck it's not a trope i think you should ever do but in the case of spider-man 2 it's it's a i'd say if you have to this is a good example of fridging so they give dr octopus a wife her name is a uh, rose and she passes away she uh, dr octopus tries to do a experiment he tries to make a sun in the middle of new york it becomes magnetic and it breaks magnetic planes and it shatters into a bunch of glass and it kills his wife and he he sort of gets this delusion because when he makes his arms they have what he calls an inhibitor chip it's to stop them from taking over his brain that shatters like immediately and sort of the arms start to take over and i was watching with my friends spider-man 2 like i said before and i was watching with them and one of my friends turns to me and he goes oh they're like they're like snakes because they they sort of hiss but not in the way snakes do they sort of have this like mechanical hiss like if you've ever worked at like a car factory or like you've ever like seen a car um like pipe sort of it has a like hissing sound and so i think that was a really interesting interpretation of the character because in the comics dr octopus he just controls the the arms with his mind but in this movie it's almost like the arms are dr octopus and they're controlling the physical body of otto octavius and i think that was a very interesting interpretation another thing that's interesting is that sam raimi the director of this trilogy he was a horror director he started out making the evil dead movies and so he sort of pioneered the first person shot and there's a scene in spider-man 2 where they're in a hospital and they want to cut the the arms off of dr octopus and it's it's just a horror scene like for a solid three to to four minutes it's just a, it's just a horror scene and it's it's terrifying but i think it's also great and i think if you want to make a superhero movie and you want to show maturity you have to be able to include scenes like those you have to be able to include scenes that you wouldn't exactly just put in a normal you know a basic comic book movie and i think pushing the boundaries or it's like that is good now i want to talk about the the last trio of of characters and the reason i put them as a trio is because all three of them appear in spider-man 3 and all three of them are collectively one big problem so it would be harry osborne aka the new goblin uh flint marco aka the sandman and then eddie brock aka venom all three sort of serve they they kind of come in different acts so act one of spider-man 3 Harry Osborn shows up, Peter Parker's about to engage, or he's gonna propose to Mary Jane so they can become engaged, and Aunt May gives him this ring, and it's very important, Aunt May gives him a ring that Uncle Ben gave her, so we have importance, the audience has importance to why this ring is so, just like needs to be with Peter, like it has to be this ring, Peter can't afford another ring because again he's Spider-Man, he's spending all this money on 
urethane rubber and Hollywood suits. I mean, seen the suits in the movie. And then Harry shows up straight up, like curb stomps Peter. Like Peter's literally just driving on on the road on his little moped. Harry grabs him, just straight up slams him into a building and just goes, okay, let's fight. And Peter's like, yo, no, that's bad. But he doesn't listen. And so that's act one. And then Harry gets amnesia, which is another incredibly stupid trope. So they, they've done fridging. They've done not writing female characters correctly. And then they've done amnesia. So as much as I love these films, man, sometimes they just needed to sit down and get better writers. And then Act 2 happens, Sandman shows up, and he sort of has the sympathetic treatment that Doc Ock has, except his daughter, his daughter has unnamed disease, but they treat it like it's cancer. So, we're gonna assume it's cancer, she has the sort of, like, nose drip, she, she's very, she's very weak, but, you know, Flint Marco here, he's, he's stealing, he's stealing money because he wants to pay for his daughter's treatment, he falls into an experiment that they were doing with sand, and then he gets mutated into sand. He becomes like a sand person. The Sandman is what they call him. Now, in the comics, Flint Marco is a criminal who signs up for the experiment willingly. However, here, he's sort of forced into that role. Now, another thing about the Sandman that's interesting to the Spider-Man trilogy is that Sandman is the one who shot Uncle Ben. So in the first movie, it's just like a random guy shoots Uncle Ben... Whatever happens, happens. We know the story. And this one, the random guy had a partner who was Sandman. Uh, Uncle Ben said, you don't have to do this. Sandman accidentally shoots him because he gets startled by the police and the guy running after him. And that's how he gets locked up for so many years. Now, another thing about Sandman is that there's this scene that happens. And it's in the soundtrack, it's called Becoming Sandman. But it's just sort of this silent scene of him forcing himself to materialize so he tries to stand up his legs are sand he can't stand up he tries to grab this necklace that his daughter gave him he can't he can't grab it because his arms are sand and he sort of puts his hands on like his head and he's like i can't do this and it's just impossible for him but he sort of stands up again and i i believe if we were told this movie from sandman's perspective this would be his spider bite scene. This this would be the scene in the first Spider-Man where we see Peter put on the suit and help all these people. This is the Sandman's heroic intro. But Sandman isn't a hero. He's a villain. And so the song goes from this beautiful, like, somber piano violin song to this dark foreboding. Has like, these organs come in. And it's uh, just... You know, he, he's a villain. He chooses to do crime. And so, Act 2, he becomes this giant sand monster. And he starts wreaking havoc in the city. He has this amazing fight with Spider-Man where Spider-Man, like, punches through him. And they got an amputated stuntman to do that. So they could CGI the hand through. And it's it's just a great scene. You know, Spider-Man 3 has amazing action. It's about the only thing it has. It doesn't have a very good story. But it has amazing action. Now, the last villain I sort of want to talk about is, is Venom. Sam Raimi's Venom is very bad. Very, very, very bad. Because Sam Raimi him, himself, the director has stated, he doesn't like Venom. Sam Raimi grew up with the 60s Spider-Man comic books. So he had Electro, he had Doc Ock, he 
He had Green Goblin. He had Elect. He had Blizzard. He had all. He had, he had the classic villains, Craven, stuff like that. Venom was made in the nineties. So he 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 just didn't he didn't want to adopt him. And so the producer of the film Avi Arad, who still makes Spider Man movies to this day, he went up to Sam Raimi and he goes, "Oh, you only make movies out of villains you like. Why don't you do the stuff the fans want? Let's do a Venom thing." And so if you've ever watched Spider Man three and you thought, "Hey, this Eddie Brock plot seems kind of..." stapled on that's because it was they had written a script it had harry peter mj fighting sandman and then like five months before shooting they just had to include eddie brock and so venom shows up eddie brock shows up in the first act he's just he's he's just a mean guy he's just a dude who's not very nice because eddie brock becomes venom in the comics so eddie brock in this movie needs to be rude um and then afterwards, he, Pete Peter gets the symbiote. That's forced. It it falls out of the sky and attaches to his motorcycle. So it's it's just a Deus Ex Machina. Peter gets the black suit. They do scenes so they can sell toys. Peter gets rid of it. It goes on to Eddie Brock. Uh, there's that scene of Eddie going to a church and praying for Jesus Christ to kill Peter Parker, which is. It's it's. Man, it's a scene, and then Venom shows up, and then the final act can start, and I think you can tell by my tone, I hate it. It's just not good. I don't know why they decided to force this character into this movie, and then after the third one, you can tell they just, like, Sam Raimi has stated multiple times he can't make, he couldn't make Spider-Man 4 because... He didn't know how to continue the story after Spider-Man 3. And I don't blame him, because where do you go from that? You sort of collapsed with Spider-Man 3. You can't you can't do any more after that. You 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 made you made Venom into a thing. Like he after Venom he has to make Carnage, but he didn't even like Venom. And there were plans for him to do Vulture, but how do you go back from Venom? You know, you, no one wants to see an old dude a bird suit after you just fought an alien monster so that's that those are my thoughts on the characters and after this ad break i will be going into the filmmaking and some standouts of the trilogy all right now that we're back so i wanted to get into the filmmaking and sort of the standouts for this trilogy so as i stated before the director sam raimi he started out making the evil dead trilogy which was a series of horror movies which also sort of jumpstarted the first-person perspective in Hollywood. He's, his contribution was he had attached a camera to a bike, and he sort of rode through a cabin, and that represented a monster chasing after one of his actors. And so Sony executives in the 90s, they were trying to make a Spider-Man movie. There was supposed to be a Spider-Man movie made by James Cameron and starring Leonardo DiCaprio. It was supposed to be rated hard R, it was not going to be very good. I've read the script. You can find the script online. It's not very good. It's it's like a Zack Snyder movie. It's very serious for a character called Spider-Man. So the the Sony executives went back to the board and they said, okay, who, who can we hire for this? And so they see these horror movies and so they think, okay, this is kind of weird. But Sam Raimi comes in and he pitches his idea 
very 60s. It goes to the classic comic books, focus on the characters, this and, and that. And another thing Sam Raimi loves to do is he loves to do a lot of things practically. Like I said before, Willem Dafoe did his own stunts as as Green Goblin, but Tobey Maguire did a lot of his own stuff as Spider-Man. Yes, they had stuntmen, but Toby had this rigorous exercise to sort of get into shape as Spider-Man. And, and one of the things is Tobey Maguire, for those who don't know, Tobey Maguire is a vegetarian, so he doesn't eat meat. This has been a thing since, I believe, it was somewhere in his early childhood. Something happened, so he's a vegetarian. So there was a lot of tofu, a lot of vegetables that he would just sort of inhale so he could get to that Spider-Man body. And another thing was, at, at the time, they sort of, they did everything, they made all the sets, like, real. And so when when they're in Times Square, they're in Times Square for real. It's not like an Atlanta backlot, sort of like the MCU does. He, he dished out the money, Sony dished out the money to pay for them to go to New York. So there's a scene where Green Goblin basically jumps jump scares like an entire festival, kills a board of investors, Spider-Man shows up, saves the place. So that was really in New York City. And and they used an actual building for the Daily Bugle, all of that. And so the final fight of Spider-Man 1 takes place in a broken down church. And there's glass everywhere and there's just wooden boards and you see this uh, makeup applied on Tony Maguire because he's been hit with in the face with a bomb. Now the bomb wasn't practical because they didn't want to kill their lead actor in the first film, but it's sort of just you know, that was Willem and Toby going at it. They 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 did that. Another thing in Spider Man two, filmmaking wise, the arms were practical for Doctor Octopus. They had he had four arms and each arm had four people. And so when obviously some of it's CG, like when he's on a building or when he's on a train, that's that's obviously CGI. But they they had master puppeteers come in, and it was a solid six months. Alfred Molina would work with these guys to make it seem natural, and it I, really paid off in the final movie, in my opinion. It's it I mean it's beautiful, and in a world where everything is green screen, I mean we have entire suits that are computer generated for for the latest spider-man movie spider-man no way home the integrated suit tom holland's suit for the entirety of the statue of liberty fight computer generated he he does he doesn't wear that suit he wears he wears his basic red and blue suit and late into the process they wanted a new suit so they just they just siege out him over in every frame and they they didn't they didn't have the technology to do that back in the early 2000s so you know sam raimi was a good planner at least for production design and filmmaking and stuff like that. So he, he went ahead and he, he planned ahead with, with fights, with suits and stuff like that. Uh, another thing that I, I want to talk about is what they like to call the, the spider drone. So the spider drone, like I said, or as the name implies, is a drone that's supposed to represent Spider-Man. So if you ever see those like massive swinging shots where... He, Spider-Man like dips in between buildings or he, he jumps basically like, into the clouds. What they did is they got a robot and, and they would do it first person or they do it third person and they would physically film the background of New York. So the CGI artists knew where movement was. So it would be storyboarded, then the cameras would be 
would be sent out to film that part of New York. And so the the filmmakers didn't have to make a completely CGI New York like most of them do now. No, they they had a background ready. And so they just had to make a model and lighting. And obviously that's not exactly easy, but it's sort of weird to go back to a time where everything is everything wasn't so cgi it's it's and it, it does look better if you compare the cgi for Tobey Maguire from spider-man 2 to the cgi for Tobey Maguire from spider-man no way home spider-man 2 looks better spider-man 2 came out in 2004 spider-man 2 came out a month before i was born and it looks better than a movie that came out in december of last year and I don't know if that's either a testament to the filmmakers or if that's just showing how downhill the MCU has gotten. But whatever it is, in my opinion, it's just, you know, it's we had a standard and we keep lowering it so we can get more movies. Maybe we need to stop making all these movies and start raising our standards again, I, I suppose is what I want to say. Uh so now I want to go to standouts. So standout moments, standout actors, standout things just about this trilogy. So I and I, I did talk about this like a little bit, but I just I just want to put it out here. Sam Raimi's Spider-Man suit. I I, I I love it. It's not it's not my favorite Spider-Man suit. And I think some of the colors are weird because Hollywood has a thing where the red and blues are always wine red and navy blues. But the costuming in these movies are f phenomenal. I, I think Tobey Maguire fills that suit very well. He had a muscle suit on, but again, he did work out heavily for this movie. And so it's it, it's a beautiful suit. I think if, if you see sort of the costume design philosophy now for the MCU... A lot of them have lines, a lot of them have broken up spaces, a lot of them have metal where metal isn't supposed to be, and you can argue that is in the Sam Raimi suit. There's raised webbing, there's silver instead of black, but it just has this sort of heroic look, and this, the suit's iconic. There's a reason why, for the video game Spider-Man PS4, there was a campaign for a solid while, from September to December, for people begging for just this one movie suit to be in the game because this suit means a lot to a lot of people and this suit is amazing. And it's not just Spider-Man. Green Goblin's a very hard character to adapt. In No Way Home, to give him his purple cloak, they had to give him a, a tattered up purple hoodie. I think his look in Spider-Man is amazing. In Spider-Man 2, Doc Ock has this, this great, these great, gray metallic snakes coming out of him for his tentacles and then he has sort of this amazing like brown coat with with sunglasses and like sometimes they're goggles and in in the bank he has a fedora which i wish he would have wore more because i think it's very 60s it's very classic the the venom design i like the venom design i think for the aesthetic of the sam raimi movies the venom design is very good the black sam raimi suit the symbiote suit for sam raimi's films i think it's just a color-swapped version of the red and blue suit, but I love the red and blue suit so much it can get away with it. Although, if the MCU ever does adapt the Venom stuff, I really hope we get a comic-accurate Venom suit. The The only 
the only bad costume in this movie, I, I think, or the, this entire trilogy, at least for the main characters, is is what they call the new goblin. And so in the character, so in the comics, there's a character called the Hobgoblin, and they reference that in Spider-Man Three because there's sort of like an orange green goblin helmet. And I suppose either early in the drafts or maybe maybe they they were just thinking about it. Maybe it was just an Easter egg. But I think James Franco should have worn that, but he didn't. He has this sort of, like, black turtleneck, and he has this mask that doesn't cover his forehead. So it's like, if you if you wear glasses, it's sort of at the top of where your glasses would be, and it just, like, closes in. It's, it's a very weird mask, because it's, like, not a mask. It's just, like, a face covering. And I think that was... That that was a mistake, but you know the costume department. That that's a standout. Another standout I want to talk about is the music. The, the music in these movies are very very good. The, some would even say this is the Spider-Man theme. And these films, all three of them, were scored by well, okay, so Spider-Man One and Spider-Man Two, scored by Danny Elfman. Spider-Man Three was scored by another person. And what had happened is Spider-Man 2, Danny Elfman just didn't want to do it anymore. He wasn't having fun. He wasn't agreeing with Sam Raimi on a lot of things. And so there was a lot of back and forth. And what ended up happening is Spider-Man 2, he left. So he left. And Spider-Man 3, he just didn't come back. And to, to this day, Spider-Man 3 does not have an official soundtrack release. You can get Spider-Man 1. You can get Spider-Man 2. If you want to get Spider-Man 3 or you ever see Spider-Man 3 out in the wild as a soundtrack... Know that Sony has not officially released that. That is a bootleg. And it's just either music someone's ripped from a Dolby 5.1 mix. Or someone put it through a quick vocal remover and just slapped the instrumentals on a CD. So there's your PSA for the day. But Sam, the the Danny Elfman Spider-Man theme is is, is iconic. It's, It's the opening... Titles. These movies have opening titles, and the theme plays over every opening title. And not only does, not only does the theme play for every opening title, it changes. So in Spider-Man One, it's the main opening titles. It's the basic opening titles. In Spider-Man Two, it cuts halfway through and it inserts Doc Ock's theme, and then it comes back, and the main title continues. And in Spider-Man Three, it, it cuts out and it has the black suit theme, and it comes back and it plays the title again. And I think that's something. Very unique. It sort of reminds me... This is like a weird comparison. It reminds me of like an anime opening that like changes with the series. Because like... Like it it adapts to the movie that's playing in. And so I saw a lot of people when No Way Home came out, they're like, oh, you know, if Tobey Maguire's going to be in this one, what if they do like a Sam Raimi, Danny Elfman opening? And oh, what if they do like a, a Danny Elfman, Sam Raimi style like credits or whatever? And it's like... Like, as much as I would have loved that, that would have spoiled the movie completely because we would have immediately known Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield would have showed up. And, and you know, I would have loved to see that No Way Home, but no. we to- Tobey Maguire gets to have Danny Elfman's theme. Tom gets his own theme, and, and Andrew gets his own theme. So that is that. So uh, we are going to go on to... One more ad break, very quickly, and then after that, 
I'm going to talk about the influence of this film on me personally, and then I'll give some recommendations and some trivia about the trilogy. So I will see you guys after these ads. Alright, so we are back. So now I want to talk about the the influence these films sort of had on my life, and not just on my life, but on a film in, in general. So as I said before earlier, why I want to talk about these films, you know, as a brown kid who came to America, action movies, you all heard the story, but I, I watched these films recently, and as, as a college student, I, I related to Peter on a level I didn't think I ever would, and I, I it's, it's weird, because... Because you sort of see the the parts that were boring to you as a kid are so much more interesting to you now. And the parts that were amazing to you as a kid are just so much more boring now. Because as a kid, I'm like, okay, I don't care about Peter Parker and his love life or whatever. And it, I, mean, I want to get to the part where he gets to punch a bad guy. And it it's sort of now as an adult, you see, okay, sure, he gets to punch bad guys, but he, he, he doesn't go home happy. He's, he's not happy and and but he still does what he does and I, I think that sort of in, inspired me it, it got to a point you know I had I was at a low point in my life I want to say near senior year like near the ending of senior year beginning of coming here to Auburn where I was I, I wasn't happy I was stressed I was scared I didn't know what I was going to do and it's it's weird to to tell people that Hey, you know, Spider Man is your your inspiration. It's not your your dad or your mom or like a historical figure, but just like a a teenager who's like you and who's scared and who makes mistakes and and but it's it's true, you know. It's it's, it's true. It's Spider Man. Spider Man's my inspiration, and he always has been. And I think without these films. I would have never gotten that inspiration. I think without these films, a lot of people wouldn't have gotten that inspiration. You talk to a lot of people who got into the superhero genre. Heck, you can talk to you know the current Spider-Man, Tom Holland. He he talks about how he grew up with the Tobey Maguire trilogy and how much that inf- impacted his love for Spider-Man. And now he is Spider-Man. And you know, it's just I I think I've had a lot of criticisms of these movies, but. I, I I love them. I love all three of these films. They're 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 beautiful. It's it's a story about a guy who gets knocked down and has every reason to be mad at the world, deciding no, you know, I can either be angry at the world or I can decide to fix it. And he he goes and he fixes it. And there is no Avengers. There is no Guardians of the Galaxy for Spider Man. And at least this Spider Man, there's no superheroes to help him in this universe so he he goes at it alone and that's what's like what life is like sometimes sometimes you're alone but just because you're alone doesn't mean you should be sad and i think that's that's the biggest message you should take away from these movies just because you are alone doesn't mean you should be sad so that's that's the impact spider-man's had on on my life so now I want to get into the effect that Spider-Man has sort of had on the, the film industry, and not just the comic book film industry, but the film industry in general. So, at the time of its release, 
Spider-Man had the biggest box office opening on a weekend ever. It, it shattered every record. It was massive. And in 2000, director Brian Singer had made X-Men, which is based off the X-Men. And that movie was loved by comic book fans, but wasn't exactly loved by critics. Spider-Man was loved by both. It was not just a good comic book movie. It was a good movie. And people lined up to see this movie. People saw it multiple times. And you sort of have to remember the 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 state of what New York City was. So this movie came out in 2002. The, the attacks had happened last year. And, and people wanted to see a, a hero. And there's a scene in this movie that Sam Raimi has said he, he added afterwards. There's a scene where Spider-Man's about to get hit by the Green Goblin's glider when he's holding on to a, a ferry train and he's trying to get MJ out of the way. And Green Goblin gets hit by a metal pipe and it's, it's a bunch of New Yorkers and they're on a bridge and they say, you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. It's supposed to represent New York standing up for Spider-Man. And I, I see now a lot of days, like in weird TikTok edits in weird compilations and a lot of those stuff you see people quoting the the green goblin quote it's it's saying you know in spite of everything you've done they will hate you and the first film itself disproves that because people care about spider-man it, it's it's a community new york city you it's not just that one guy you have little kids you have you have black people, you have white people, you have men, you have women, you have everybody in there chucking rocks at this weird green guy because, hey, you know, Spider-Man's this, this creepy-looking guy in a red and blue costume, but he's also going out of his way to save people's lives, and so I think that was another impact this film had on a lot of people. They, they needed a hero after what had happened, and Peter Parker came along, and he said, hey, if y'all need a hero... I, I, I guess I could fill in for that role and and that's just that's an another that's another amazing thing about this film. It's it's not just about, you know, the big guy. It's not just about stopping Thanos or or stopping, you know, whatever country from getting blasted off the face of the earth. It's it's just about stopping and saving New York City. So I I think that's another massive impact. Now recommendations that are similar to this movie the spider-man trilogy is so unique because it's an early 2000s comic book movie that's good and that's very hard to follow up so i would say if you like the sam raimi spider-man trilogy you would probably be interested in sort of a lot of young adult like stories spider-man is a Spider-Man at its core is a teen drama. It's a young adult story. A lot of Spider-Man fans don't like to admit that. It is. Peter Parker is a 16-year-old who has teen drama. But instead of, like, romances, he just fights dudes who dress up like rhinos. So, I would say, if you're in for something superhero-wise, I would recommend the Nolan Batman movies, The Dark Knight, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight Rises. They are slightly tonally different from Sam Raimi, but I still think they fall into that valley of these are different enough from the comics to where they're valid adaptations, but they're close enough to the comics to where if these are the only adaptations you watch, you'll you'll probably understand the, the gist of it. And I would say for a more story-heavy, for a more humanistic experience, 
uh, film I would recommend is The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Now, that might seem like a weird recommendation after watching Spider-Man movies, but I think if you like this interpretation of Peter Parker, if you like the sort of shy nerd who goes through this journey of self-discovery, The Perks of Being a Wallflower is was one of those films where it's about a shy guy. He's, it's literally a dude who's a wallflower, and he goes through this journey of self-acceptance, and he understands who he is, and it's it's an amazing film. And if you want something a bit more that leans into the comic booky silliness, I would recommend Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. It's like... I recommend it like Spider-Man because it's a very silly movie that knows it's silly. It accepts that it's silly. And I would rather watch a movie that accepts that it's silly and lean into the comic bookiness of stuff than to simply try to take everything super seriously. Alright, so... That has been the first episode of Real Talk, a study of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy. I hope you guys had a great night. If you ever want to keep updates on Real Talk, you can follow us at realtalk underscore 91.1 on Instagram. R-E-E-L-T-A-L-K underscore 91.1 on Instagram. Thank you and have a great night. Hope y'all enjoyed that episode of Real Talk. Keep up to date at wegofm.com and for any late listeners, check your podcast player choice for the full episode. Thank you and have a good night.